This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The pandemic has given us many opportunities to see the value in thinking like an economist. Cato's Ryan Bourne has now chronicled the good and bad economic reasoning and decisions, both public and private, in his new book, Economics in One Virus, an introduction to economic reasoning through COVID-19, released today. What follows is our conversation about the book for this month's edition of Cato Audio. Ryan, it wasn't that long after the United States began taking this seriously. I think that was probably mid to late February that governments started to respond. And what would you say is the first big error that governments made either in this country or around the globe in responding to this virus? Well, I think it's almost kind of become a cliche to say among libertarians now, but I still agree with journalists like Ed Young at The Atlantic who've said that the testing debacle early on was kind of the original scene of the pandemic response. Um, the pandemic in many ways is what economist Joshua Gans has kind of described as an information problem. Um, some people have a virus. Um, we don't know who has the virus. We don't know who's at risk of getting the virus from interacting with those people. So the country had quite a narrow window of opportunities to try and um, identify who had the virus, to stamp out clusters of cases, identify where the virus was spreading, and then implement quite kind of targeted measures to stem the flow of the disease and allow people to maintain as much uh, normality uh, as possible. The problem was the the government, the FDA um, in particular, introduced an emergency use authorization process which slowed down the process of diagnostic test approval. It banned um, university labs from undertaking their own tests. The CDC bungled its test, um, produced a a faulty test. Um, And as a result of that, we didn't know who had the virus and um, that delay over a couple of months led to a massive spread through the population. Now, it's really important to understand, I think where this links into my book, it's important to understand the economic mistake being made because um, public officials were obviously worried about dodgy tests and the fact that if we had tests that were giving misleading results, it might misinform us about the state of the pandemic. Um, But we have to think of this like economists and think about costs and benefits. Yes, if we'd have had bad tests, they would have misinformed us, and that's a downside. But the alternative at the time was not bad tests, but having no tests. Um, So the costs of precluding private testing in terms of identifying cases was extremely high. The benefits of those regulations that were delaying the tests were pretty much non-existent. What's worse than a slightly inaccurate test is no test. And as a result of that, we had a lot of false negatives out there, people who actually were infected with the virus without knowing it. Um, and as a result, we all had to live our lives as if um, we were positive. So there were lots of false positives out there. And that massively increased the cost of the pandemic because it basically ruled out from the get-go the opportunity to do something like South Korea had done, which has proved kind of the most sustainable approach over the long term. So if we'd have had those tests early on, we'd have had far greater epidemiological knowledge. We have had to impose less stringent restrictions on people's lives. We could have had more uh, open kind of economic activity through that period. And I think we'd have seen fewer overall deaths. So that to me is the biggest mistake that we've made in this whole thing. You say that, and my first thought is, but we would end up trusting the same government to make adequate use of this new knowledge. And uh, that that poses a problem as well, given the responses that we actually saw. 
Well, um, John Cochran had a great quote about this on another podcast recently where he was talking about test, trace and isolate. And he said the problem in a lot of economic policy debates is we don't include subjects in our sentences. Um, so who is undertaking the testing? Uh, who is being tested? Who's doing the tracing? And who's ensuring that people are isolating? And you're right. Um, this wouldn't have been perfect. We wouldn't have completely stamped out the virus and got to COVID zero. Um, we would have been reliant on the fact that um, individuals would have had to act on their test results. But we have to compare you know, the real world that we live in in reality with um, a realistic alternative. And I think if we'd have had widely available tests um, with people undertaking them, yes, we would have been reliant on people then self-isolating. But um, it seems pretty clear to me that on the margins, more people would have been self-isolating uh, than we actually saw. Uh, having been infected with the disease. And indeed, if we'd have had um, widespread availability of rapid at-home tests where people could uh, undertake this uh, more, on a more regular basis, then I think that would have been um, better still. So, no, you, you know, you're right, it wouldn't have been perfect. And uh, I think it would have been a mistake to rely on centralised authority to impose that kind of test, trace and, and isolate um, for the reasons that you state. Um, but we've got to compare the the world that we live in with uh, a realistic alternative. Um, and I think that would have been a big marginal improvement. So, uh, you know, the, the first chapter here uh, in your book, what does it mean to be economically worse off during a pandemic? Obviously, we saw in March massive uh, unprecedented increases in uh, unemployment in, in the United States. Um, one, it's, it's, it's hard to make sense of that because it's, it is so unprecedented, but for those who were left without a job at some point in March or April, uh, how many of those people really were worse off? I have to assume the vast majority. Well, when we're talking about uh, whether you're economically worse off, we kind of can divide things into two. We can talk about whether people were financially worse off, uh, and clearly uh, lots of people um, were as a result of the, the pandemic and its impacts. Um, you saw the big downturns in demand for particular goods and services, uh, particularly you know goods and services that require physical interaction. Um, a lot of people did lose their jobs at that time. Unemployment, the official rate at least, shot up to um, 14.8%. Um, but when economists think about being better or worse off, we're really talking about a broader conception of economic welfare, which incorporates not just people's financial status, but also uh, their ability to fulfill their preferences, to, to live the way that they want to live. Um, and and that type that type of economic welfare um, is context dependent. So, what we might want to do in an ordinary situation, in terms of going to the cinema or going to visit family, might be very, very different in the middle of a pandemic. So, the point I'm trying to make in the first chapter of the book is really to say, when we just look at GDP or uh, what happened to unemployment in those early days when the pandemic hit. Um, that doesn't incorporate lots of the other ways that we were made worse off as a result of COVID-19 through all the imposed restrictions on our liberties, um, but also the constraints that we put on ourselves in terms of our behaviour, not being able to engage in activities that we would ordinarily uh, prefer to. Now, the reason that that context-specific aspect is so important, though, 
is that clearly it would have made lots of us worse off if we'd have just behaved as normal uh, when the circumstances that faced us were were very different. Even before um, you know formal lockdowns were imposed by state governors, people were voluntarily changing lots of their behaviour. And that's because when the environment around us changes, um, the optimal decisions that we want to make uh, change. So the important point that I'm making there is that um, when we talk about how people were made uh, worse off as a result of the pandemic, we have to include um, the, the value of those lost liberties, which are so often not even talked about when we're uh, discussing the effects of the pandemic. But we also have to think about how people's uh, preferences and actions would voluntarily change um, given the new world that people faced at that time. When you talk about being worse off because a restaurant that I used to go to is closed, either through a government mandate or just uh, they've decided to close because nobody's coming in there, uh, that's, a, that's a loss. That's an economic loss. But again, uh, hard to quantify. Yeah, it's extraordinarily difficult to quantify, um, but clearly that is a loss to your to your life and to your well being. Not being able to engage in activities that you'd want to engage in. Um, now, the pandemic is a, a thornier economic problem because um, it's not just uh, about individuals' actions and individuals optimizing uh, their own behaviour based on the conditions around them because uh, there are big externalities. There, if I engage in going to dinner at your house, that might be something that we're both willing to do given our risk tolerance in the middle of a pandemic and because we value each other's company so highly. Um, but there are potential for our behavior to risk the increase of the spread of the virus to other people, either uh, from me traveling from my house to your house or uh, going back and engaging with my own family, people who aren't party to the actual uh, initial interaction, and um, uh, you kind of third parties that are being affected by our behavior. And when you think of all the individual interactions that take place on a daily basis, um, and and how that leads to the spread of the virus, it was perhaps almost inevitable that uh, in restrictions that would be imposed on some of our behaviors would have to be imposed on quite a broad basis to try to keep the reproduction rate of the virus uh, below one and stop the kind of uh, an exponential spread um, to the phase where um, there was really quite a lot of death and illness in the population. So yes, you're, you're right. There are lots of restrictions out there, whether they're uh, mandated or whether they're um, voluntary changes to decisions that made us worse off as individuals. The reason that the pandemic was such a difficult problem, though, was that even in situations where perhaps we acted on our own self-interest, there was the risk that that behavior would then lead to a greater spread of the virus that would affect third parties. All right. And that's chapter two of your book, uh, and introducing externalities through uh, COVID-19. And, uh, you know, we're used to thinking of externalities. I like to think of positive externalities first. Uh, the smell of fresh baked bread uh, is is one that uh, of a store that you may not be shopping at. But the, uh, the downside externality, negative externalities, uh, it's, enti- it's entirely possible for uh, people to 
not just refuse to behave in a way consistent, that refuse to behave in a way that would effectively internalize that externality, but in this case, you would have, in many cases, no idea that you were imposing costs on other people. Yeah, and that's why this was so difficult. I mean, there's still a debate as to the kind of degree to which um, asymptomatic spread is um, a, a key driver of this. It does seem like it's quite a big proportion of the overall spread of the um, disease, and certainly pre-symptomatic spread, so being able to spread the virus before you exhibit symptoms, uh, makes this a much more difficult externality problem um, than perhaps many others that we might have to deal with. Now, you know, we know as economists and, and kind of libertarian-minded economists that not every externality requires a government response. Um, we see uh, private market mechanisms deal with effects on third parties all the time. There's a famous example of a, a kind of skyscraper that was being proposed in uh, New York and a bunch of residents nearby decided that that was going to uh, affect them adversely by spoiling their view. They banded together. They paid the developer not to develop. Um, Ronald Coase did a lot of work uh, explaining how in situations where transactions costs were low and people were able to gather together to negotiate, people come to voluntary um, private sector agreements to deal with externalities in this, in this way. The difficulty with um, COVID-19 and its spread is that once the, the virus is out there in the community and we don't know who's got it as a result of not having the, the testing, there's kind of a pervasive general externality problem where nobody knows who has the virus and so many people have the virus that um, trying to internalize that cost of spreading it is incredibly difficult. Um, so then you have to try and kind of reframe this in a different way and think, as a society, how can we minimize the overall costs, the economic costs, the health costs, the liberty costs of this pandemic? How can we minimize the combined uh, costs of those things um, through a combination of our voluntary action and policy? And that's incredibly difficult uh, to think about, not just because the externality is is often hard to um, identify for the, the reasons that I've said, but also because once people have had the virus and have recovered from it, uh, their immunity um, provides a bit of a positive externality, uh, which is the whole reason why, we, um, why we're currently going through our vaccination program. You know, a lot of people thought about that externality problem and, they said, and then said, okay, most of the social costs of this virus, the external costs that come from our all um, interacting together, um, come about as a result of the virus spreading to older people and vulnerable people. And, and that's undoubtedly true. So then people said, okay, well, what we should therefore do is try to have focus protection where older people and vulnerable people are kind of um, insulated from the behavior of everybody else, um, which is the kind of idea be behind the, the Great Barrington Declaration. And that kind of makes sense in theory. Um, but in reality, as we've seen with, with kind of nursing homes, as we've seen with people living in multi-generational housing, um, people working in certain occupations where they interact with lots of people, um, the kind of dense networks that we have in, in society generally, it, it's actually really, really difficult in practice to, uh, to have focused protection for what combined is quite a large proportion of the population. So again, I think it was perhaps almost inevitable as a result of that and as a result of this pervasive externality problem.
that we would have uh, some restrictions on uh, broad numbers of the population. Now, what those restrictions should be and what's the way of minimizing the costs of this pandemic, I think, is a much more open question and then one that I kind of later explore in the book. Uh, you make mention of moral hazard here, and you talk about how to uh, understand moral hazard in the context of uh, this pandemic. The example you use uh, is someone who's wearing a mask, but is nonetheless getting too close to you. Um, it might be appropriate also to think about that in terms of uh, what they call the compensating behavior or the Peltzman effect. That is, I am engaging in this uh, risky activity. So I take precautions to protect me from this risky activity. And uh, then in response to the precaution I've taken, I engage in slightly riskier activity. Yeah. So I think kind of risk compensation, the Peltzman effect that we're talking about, I think is an underexplored um, topic in this pandemic. Well, one of the debates that we had early on is whether widespread mask wearing was appropriate. And there's a whole other kind of chapter where I, I take to task some of the public health officials who um, early on, despite people voluntarily wearing uh, masks as a kind of low cost precautionary measure for them personally, were advised by those public health officials that they shouldn't be wearing masks. And um, one of the reasons that the public health officials said that is because they didn't really believe that this was spreading um, through asymptomatic uh, individuals. And so they thought people with symptoms would be at home anyway, and these masks were kind of useless in the community. That doesn't explain, though, why they, they actively went out of their way to tell people not to wear them. It might explain why they didn't advocate for them. Um, the reason that they, they advised people not to wear them is because they were plain armchair economists, and they believed that saying to people that they should wear those masks would lead to um, a surge in demand, which it undoubtedly would have, but that would have kind of used up masks uh, from being available for healthcare workers and, and uh, nursing home workers. Um, and that to me shows a very kind of static view of the world uh, and doesn't think about how quickly we'd see a supply response, which of course we did once um, uh, masks were being um, advised to be worn by those same public health officials when they had to ab about turn a few months later. Now, how does this relate to to, to kind of the Peltzman effect. Well, one of the concerns that some public health officials had about people wearing masks was that as a result of the um, perceived dissipated risk that comes from mask wearing, people wouldn't socially distance as much and would engage in other riskier behaviours like spending more time indoors in badly ventilated um, areas. Now, in part, the whole point of wearing the mask was to allow more activity to take place. So some would argue that that's a feature and not a bug. Um, but I do think that a kind of underexplored question here is the extent to which the focus that we've seen on mask wearing and the amount of discussion of it has actually led to an underappreciation of the importance of being in well-ventilated spaces. Um, and there's certainly a lot of my family members and friends that I've spoken to who've had COVID-19 who told me that they had no idea how they caught it because they were socially distancing and wearing masks. And then when you talk to them in detail, you realize that they were spending time indoors in people's houses, wearing a mask and standing more than two meters away, but for relatively long periods of time. 
And so I think this focus on masks and the idea that this would significantly reduce people's risks may have had a risk compensation effect where people have been more willing to kind of engage in indoor activity uh, that offsets any kind of risk reduction benefit that the mask might have. One of the early bits of data that came out that I think was attempting to separate out a little bit the uh, costs and benefits of government-issued mandates to lock down and the costs and benefits of private people making a decision uh, just not to engage socially uh, with other people. And that was data from opentable.com. Uh, the the place that manages uh, reservations for so many restaurants throughout the country. And you see, before lockdowns, a pretty precipitous decline in reservations. So when we try to understand uh, the public actions here and the private action uh, in response to the virus, how do we begin to get a sense of that? Well, it's a really difficult question. And I've seen um, a lot of people try to undertake cost-benefit analysis of, of lockdowns, which I define in the book as as um, the kind of broad stay-at-home, non-essential business closure, school closure measures that we, we saw in particular last spring. Now, unwinding um, how much, say, the GDP loss was as a result of the voluntary changes to behavior that we saw as opposed to the government lockdowns is incredibly difficult. Um, realistically, you could try and compare across states, some that locked down and some didn't, but then there's kind of interconnections between economic activity in in different states. So that's a very imperfect way of looking at it. Um, And uh, I I read a a very interesting Wall Street Journal piece the other day that kind of suggested the fact that no state government or or national government worldwide had undertaken a comprehensive cost-benefit analysis of, of lockdown uh, perhaps showed that they didn't really believe that they would pass a, a cost-benefit test. Now, I, I have a kind of more generous interpretation. I just think it's incredibly difficult to um, unwind these factors um, for a number of reasons. Um, but the main reason I think it's difficult is because if you look across states and across time, it does appear to be the case that um when there's a very, very high prevalence of the disease, uh, people's behavior changes more dramatically. People stay home more often. People go to restaurants less, even if it's outdoors. Uh, people do a whole range of, uh, engage in a whole range of behaviors that reduce their risks of, of catching or spreading the virus. Um, but the point at which they do that doesn't appear to be consistent in countries over time or between countries. So attempting to kind of model what would happen uh, without lockdown and compare it to what actually happened with lockdown um, is incredibly difficult to do. Um, And, you know, even if you could do that, you have to think about the duration of the time that you're assessing too, because it may well be, for example, that last year, many of the, the deaths averted as a result of the initial lockdown, uh, at least some of them, would have been deaths delayed until the reopening occurred and the virus um, spread again. So trying to unpick this difference between private and and public action is really tough. And my my kind of broad conclusion is I don't think that we really get to the bottom of that question, exactly how cost-effective, if at all, 
uh, those initial lockdowns were until we have very, very careful kind of retrospective econometric analysis that I just don't think is there yet. And even then, uh, the fact that these two things are so strongly related, it's not even clear to me really that the lockdowns were not inspired by a decline in economic activity that was already well underway. Yeah, I think that certainly uh, could be the case. I mean, th- th- those initial months, my hunch is that those initial lockdowns were both overrated in their costs and benefits by critics and advocates alike, because there had been such a drastic uh, change in voluntary behavior. Since then, I do think there's been uh, trade-offs in, in certain parts of the country. Certainly, it seems that um, in most places, at least, those that didn't lock down as heavily didn't see as big a, a downturn in, in terms of unemployment. But again, you know, it depends on the time frame that you're looking at. Um, if we kind of strip away those, um, those earlier months and say, okay, we'll give those states a free pass because they didn't deal with it, but there was a huge range of uncertainty and nobody knew how much it had seeped into the community then, then actually a lot of the states that, that, that never locked down look relatively bad. But, you know, if you take the pandemic as a whole, um, there's often not dramatic differences in outcomes between uh, certain lockdown and non-lockdown states. So you can cut and you can cut and move around the data to kind of suit your narrative. Uh, we also have to be careful, of course, not to talk about um, lockdowns as if there's a kind of blanket conclusion that applies uh, for all countries and all times. Um, certainly, you know, where I'm from in the UK, um, behavior and uh, and the ebbs and flows of the virus seem to be extremely sensitive with whether the country is in lockdown or not. There appears to be you know, quite high compliance with lockdown measures. And uh, at the moment, um, when we're recording this in, in mid-March, there seems to be an upturn in the prevalence of the virus in much of Europe. Uh, and the UK, which is still in lockdown, has, has kind of seen a bit of a suppression for the time being. Now, in certain states in the US um, that haven't locked down um, for, for, for anywhere near as long or, or tried to suppress the virus, we still see the ebb and flows. We see those waves occur as people change their behavior. Um, but there doesn't appear to be as, as much of a direct connection with, with, um, with public action. So... I think when we're assessing this in time, we'll have to look at the individual cases and the individual time periods. What I try to do in the book, though, in that chapter, is really set out what you'd need to measure and bear in, and bear in mind if you were to undertake a cost-benefit um, analysis of lockdowns well. Um, that includes defining the counterfactual, what I've just uh, kind of discussed in terms of setting out clearly what you'd have expected to happen absent the lockdown given voluntary behavior. It also means linking back to what we were talking about in the off, thinking about the value to people of those lost, liber- those lost liberties to be able to engage in activities that might not appear in, in GDP. It's a really difficult question, but I think good economics can inform us in terms of the things that we should consider if we're thinking about a cost-benefit analysis in a comprehensive way. There were a whole lot of people that were left unemployed dozens of weeks after the uh, pandemic really began. You saw this massive spike in long-term unemployed, which is what you would expect to see uh, months after a uh, an event like that to occur. Uh, restaurants went out of business. A lot of other businesses uh, went out of business. And yet there were uh, new businesses or uh, recent 
uh, new businesses that suddenly saw uh, massive surges in popularity. I'm thinking of uh, businesses like Instacart or Seamless, food delivery, that sort of grocery delivery, that sort of thing to people's homes saw this massive uh, increase. And for all of that capital that has been left fallow by the fact that people are not uh, engaging the way they were uh, just over a year ago, um, and lots of people presumably ready to work, uh, how soon might we see a uh, you know potentially a massive economic renaissance in a sense that is uh, companies that were left behind, that capital still exists? Well, I think we can be quite bullish about the economic recovery. I think that you know you're right. This isn't like a this COVID often gets analogized to war, but unlike in war, we haven't had um, vast amounts of kind of capital destruction. Unfortunately, we've had some loss of life, but uh, not uh, much among the working age population. Um, but there's no reason, inherent reason, I think, to suspect that the growth potential of the economy has been permanently impaired. We might worry about um, some of the impacts on entrepreneurialism. You know, if you're somebody who's a serial entrepreneur, uh, enjoys opening businesses, you might not have even conceived before this pandemic that there was the potential for state governments to close them for for long periods of time. So, you know, on the margins, I can see why people might be concerned about that. Um, But I expect the economy to bounce back relatively quickly. And indeed, the economy has adjusted incredibly well to this pandemic. Um, I believe I'm right in saying that consumption is now back pretty much to the level it was um, at the start of the pandemic or just before the pandemic started. Now, that in part is due to vast amounts of relief given out by the federal government, uh, by federal taxpayers in the longer term. Um, But in part, it's people finding new ways and engaging in new economic activities given the restrictions that have been imposed. Um, I think there will be some teething problems um, in the near term because we have no idea yet um, whether consumer spending habits will return to uh, quote-unquote normal um, or whether they'll kind of be permanently uh, changed demands. We also don't know how um, businesses will operate in the longer term. Will this working from home trend be something that, that's sticky? Um, if only, you know, if even 10% of people that currently live in cities decide to live um, further out and um, work remotely, that will obviously dramatically change many inner city economies. But I think we can expect from what we've seen already quite a rapid adjustment. And to facilitate that as far as possible, I think we need to engage and try and advocate for a light-touch regulatory environment. And indeed, I think one of the key lessons in this pandemic is that regulation can really, whatever its other costs and benefits, can really impair our um, adaptiveness as a society. It's one of the reasons why so many regulations have had to be relaxed on businesses and and telehealth. Um, But we also see it, of course, with the testing and vaccine situation as well, where uh, regulations have preve- prevented us using medical innovations that could have ended this much more quickly. So I think there are good reasons to be optimistic. I don't think we'll bounce back to where we would have been had we never had a pandemic, but I don't see any real reason to expect that um, in a meaningful sense, um, this pandemic would have impaired our growth potential. 
Ryan Bourne is author of the new book, Economics in One Virus, an introduction to economic reasoning through COVID-19, available now. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 